Could I draw your attention to the psalm that we read, psalm number two? The words with which it begins, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? And the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed Son. As we come to God's word, let's take a moment to pray. Father, we pray again that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that your word would have its appointed effect, that it would give light to the mind and refresh the soul and rejoice the heart. For your great name's sake. Amen. It was, I think, in 1938 that Western nations sought to appease Hitler in the hope that diplomacy would work. But he took advantage of their weakness and invaded Poland. And within a very short time, the world was war plunged into what we call the Second World War. And here again, we're meeting this morning at a time when the peace and the security of Europe is under threat. Millions of Ukrainian citizens fleeing to neighboring countries, leaving their loved ones behind to defend against Russian aggression. Bodies lying in the streets, can't be buried. Great cities being razed to the ground. And I'm sure this morning our hearts go out to the young soldiers on both sides who are in a war that's not of their making. Civilian population living in fear and great danger. And it's of particular interest, of course, to Christians that in the city of Kiev alone there are over, believe it or not, 800 Christian churches. You may also know that the Christian Union work here in Ireland and Scripture Union Ireland have a special link with the work in Ukraine and over the years has been coming and going between uh, Christians here and Christians in Kiev and that, that great nation. And as we come to the Bible this morning and as we gather in this building this morning, the Bible has not been given to help us escape from the world and its pain, but to help us understand the world, why it is the way it is, and to help show us our place in it. So we're not here as some kind of quiet escape from reality, but the Bible faces us with reality and helps us make sense of it. Some of you will remember the News of the World uh, newspaper, which I think went defunct around 211. But they had used the motto, all human life is here. They boasted, if you like, that they reflected the harsh reality of human experience. If you wanted to know what was going on in the world, read the News of the World. But it seems to me that the same motto could be applied to the Book of Psalms. And here Psalm 2 is a good example. It's about the world in which we live. It's about reality. You'll notice that it uses poetic language. It's really a poem with three or four stanzas. And we're going to look at it, those three main ver or stanzas this morning. But it's a, a poem that, using poetic language, communicates eternally relevant truth in whatever nation we live in, whatever age we live. First of all, it speaks into the political world of King David in his day. That's the one about whom it was first written. And then we have already discovered, as we read Acts of the Apostles, it speaks into the situation in Jerusalem a thousand years later. It's a messianic psalm. It was speaking about the coming of Jesus. 
You'll notice, by the way, in the psalm, three different titles all applied to Jesus. God's Son, God's King, God's Anointed One. But as we read in Acts 5, it's this psalm that Peter quotes just after the death of Jesus to explain to the crowds what was going on at the death of Jesus. So it spoke to the time of King David, it spoke to the coming of Jesus, and it speaks into our world in 2022. So let's look at three very simple headings in this psalm that reflect the three main verses. Verses 1 to 3 speak about the scene on earth. Why do the nations conspire? The word in the language of the Bible literally means why do the nations rage? It speaks of a world that's in constant turmoil. The prophet Isaiah likens our world to a troubled sea which cannot rest. It's calm on the surface. I live down in Larne near the coast and so often you go down there and you'll see that the sea is like a mill pond. It's so calm. But it's always churning beneath. It's always agitated. It's always on the move. And suddenly it erupts, if you like, violently and throws up all sorts of dirt and mire to the surface. That's the picture of our world. We're the most educated and technologically advanced generation in history. And yet, today, over half a billion people live in conflict zones. We focus on, Af on Afghanistan or Yemen or Ukraine at the moment. We got out in Syria, Iraq, India, Pakistan, Myanmar, South Sudan, Libya, Somalia, Democratic Republic of Congo and uh, Central African Republic and Ethiopia, all places of violent turmoil. And of course we don't need to go beyond this island to discover that same agitation, if you like, that same distress. On average on this island we have two murders every week. Two million prescriptions dispensed last year for antidepressants. Over 500 people died from suicide, the main cause of death among 15 to 25 year olds. And these are not just cold statistics, but they're stories of human misery and pain and heartache on this island, in our communities. So we live in a world marked by turmoil. But the psalmist goes further, he said it's a world marked by futility. The people's plot in vain. As a human race, we're great at having aspirations of a better world. We're always talking about what we're going to create in the future. And yet we never seem to get our act together. All our striving seems to come to nothing. I always remember when I was a student in Belfast in the 1960s studying science, my student textbooks assured me that we were leaving behind the dark ages of superstition and religion. And through science and technology we were moving into what they called a golden age of peace and prosperity when we would rid the world of disease and hunger and war through our technology. How wrong those prophecies proved to be. The 20th century has been the most violent century in history. More people died in that one century than the previous 19 put together in violent conflicts. And the 21st century looks like it will be every bit as bad, if not worse. 
More people go to bed hungry today than any time in history. Almost a billion people, certainly well over 800 million people. Not due to lack of food in the world, because there's plenty, but due to greed and corruption. There are more displaced people than there ever has been at any time in history. Some 82 million refugees. Well, that was before Ukraine. And we can add to that quite a few more million, sadly. The slave trade was abolished over 200 years ago. And yet today, according to the United Nations, over 40 million people live in some form of slavery. And despite all our technology and all our cleverness and all our advance in education, we're driving iconic species to extinction. We're littering our oceans with our waste. We're destroying our irreplaceable resources. We're turning uh, parts, vast areas of the world into desert. And we're bequeathing to a future generation a much less healthy and a much less sustainable planet. This is our world in 2022. When I was a student again, I remember that one of the best-known philosophers who wrote a lot at the time, he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian, for example, was a man called Bertrand Russell. He was an atheist and an outspoken one. But as he came to the end of his life, he began to see the futility of offering people any hope with a secular message. He wrote these words, All the labours of all the ages, all the devotion, the inspiration and brightness of human genius are destined to extinction. And only on the foundation of unyielding despair can the human soul safely build its habitation. He was admitting what the secular message leads to. We live in a world that can offer absolutely no hope whatsoever. We live in a world marked not only by turbulence and turmoil, but a sense of futility. The people's plot in vain, says the psalmist. But he comes to the reason for it in the next verse. We live in a world that is in rebellion against God. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed one. In other words, the fundamental problem in the world is not political or economic, but spiritual. Behind the human conflict is the world's rebellion against God and his anointed son. And it's not a modern problem. The same attitude was shown down through the centuries and simply came to its climax at the cross in Calvary when the world did away with God's anointed son. You remember how in the Garden of Eden Satan's words said to Adam and Eve, go on, eat, you will be like God. At the Tower of Babel he said, let us build a tower to reach to the heavens. We can be our own gods. When Moses went to up Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, he sat down in the plain, let us make a golden calf. The time of the judges, the time of social chaos, because we're told every man did what was right in his own eyes. And now here in Acts 4, or Acts 5 that we read earlier, Psalm 2 is explained, explains the motivation, if you like, behind the rulers of this world as he did away with the Son of God in Jerusalem. What is the uh, writers say, let us break their chains. Let us throw off their fetters. We don't want this man to rule over us. As a human race, we see God's gracious laws not as a blessing for our good, but a restriction on our freedom. And we don't want him to reign over us. 
a world in turmoil, a world marked by futility, and a world in rebellion against God. That's the picture of our world today. But in verses 49, we turn from the scene on earth to the perspective of heaven. And remember, we're reading poetry here. The, the writer uses poetic language to make his point. He said, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He's speaking here about the sovereignty of God. And in his own pictorial way saying, it is laughable for men or women to set themselves against God. In fact, history is the outworking of God's divine purposes, despite our human foolishness and rebellion. When God set in motion a rescue plan for the human race, he called a man called Abraham to father a nation, and from that nation would come one in whom all nations would be blessed. But it was impossible, according to Abraham and his wife Sarah, they were too old. And God said to them, is anything too hard for the Lord? And that little boy was born, and that nation came about. And when their descendants sold their brother Joseph into slavery, they thought they were done with him. But later on in a time of famine, when they went to Egypt for help, they met him, now the Prime Minister of Egypt. And you remember how he spoke to them. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now happening, the saving of many lives. Man had their plans, but God had his plans. And again, when their descendants were slaves in Egypt, God gave Moses the impossible task of leading them to freedom. And so when he led half a million men, plus women and children, to the very edge of the Red Sea, the task was impossible for Moses. But at the very last moment, God opened up the way to freedom. And the Egyptian chariots stuck in the sand and were lost. And centuries later, when a Jewish peasant girl was told that she would give birth in her womb to the Son of God, the promised Messiah, she said, how can this be? For I am a virgin. It's impossible. You'll remember the answer of the angel was God. Nothing is impossible. And 33 years later, when that child, now a young man, hung on a cross in seeming defeat, when it seemed as though the Jewish and Roman authorities were in control, at least that's what they thought. How does Peter describe it? He said, you did it by the determinate plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him, but God raised him. And so the cross was not the beginning of the end of the Christian movement. Really, the, it was the end of the beginning of God's great plan for the world. As we see here in verse 6 of this psalm, it says, God says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And of course, there he's referring to the fact that the crucified Jesus was raised and ascended to the right hand of the Father and given the place of highest honor and authority. And so verse 8 says, this is my son, I will make the nations your inheritance. And so from his throne in heaven, Christ is calling out his people from all the nations. But once again, God's plans for doing so, for fulfilling this commission, seemed impossible, seemed foolish. Jesus commissioned a band of little timid disciples who had never left their own province. 
And he said to them, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It was a mission impossible. They had no resources, they had no status. The might of the Roman Empire was set against them. And what was the outcome? The Roman Empire collapsed and the church grew. It grew so explosively that within two centuries it was the Christian faith that predominated right throughout Europe and the Western world. And that church continues to grow today into the 21st century and so that the gospel has got a foothold in every corner of this globe. And well over a third of the population of this planet Earth, over seven billion people, over a third of that claim in some way to be followers of Christ. As he continues to draw out from all the nations a people of his very own. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we see that happening before our eyes. The psalmist here uses a very vivid picture. He said, you will dash your enemies to pieces like pottery. It's just a picture, of course. Pottery is something very fragile, very brittle. You drop it to the ground, it, it smashes. And it's a picture of how fragile the powers of darkness are when God acts. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians. He shall reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so here this psalm speaks of God's sovereignty. But you may be surprised when I say that it speaks also of God's love. Because you'll not find that word in the psalm. You'll find the word wrath twice. Now, what do we mean when we speak of God's wrath? Well, first of all, it means that there is a day of reckoning. A day when evil will have its comeuppance. And how we should rejoice in God's wrath against evil. That God will uh, finally judge all evil. And it will have its day. It will stand before the court of God and give account. How we should rejoice in that. But notice also that God's wrath speaks of God's love. How do you feel when you see the people of Mariupol being besieged and starving to death and being bombed and blasted by Russian forces? You feel angry, don't you? And so we should. Anger is often the right and proper emotion, a response to evil. If someone were to abuse a child that you loved, how you would be angry and rightly angry, and the more you love the child, the more angry you would be. And if you and I are angry at evil, how much more is a holy God angry at all that evil that destroys and damages his people? The reason God sent his son into the world to deal with it was love. God commends his love towards us, says Paul, that while we were still rebels, Christ died for us. He intervened in love. Such was his hatred of all the evil that destroys our lives. He intervened so that you and I would not reap the fruit of our disobedience. So that our many sins would be blotted out, out of existence and out of memory. So that as his enemies we could be reconciled to God and become his friends. And more than that, that you and I could be adopted into his family as his beloved children, his sons and his daughters. And so that you and I might participate in the eternal fellowship of heaven, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the eternal life that he came to bring. And so we see in the first stanza the picture of the scene on earth, the troubled world, futile world, a world in rebellion against God. 
But in the second stanza, we see a sovereign God, a God of love, seated on the throne, who has intervened on behalf of people like you and me. But the psalm finishes with the response that you and I are called to make to this God, verses 10 to 12. I don't know if you like murder mysteries in the television, Inspector Poirot or whatever one you happen to watch, but you'll know how in a, a mystery story there are many subplots. You are introduced to a group of people over here and then another group there and another group over here and there seems to be no connection to begin with. But as that story evolves, you realize how these are only subplots and there is a plot line running through the whole story that draws them all together and makes sense of the whole story and brings about the denouement. As you and I look at human history, human history as we know it, the great civilizations of the world are really only subplots. The plot line is God's saving purposes in the Lord Jesus Christ, what God is doing in the world as he advances his purposes towards their appointed conclusion. And so that's the picture we're given of history here. And we're reminded, just as in any conflict, we've got to take sides. At the moment, China claims neutrality in the whole Ukraine-Russia situation. But when it comes to the great issues of history, you and I can not be neutral. We choose which side of history we're on. We choose which side of eternity we're on. King Pharaoh chose the wrong side of history when he refused to let God's people go. King Saul chose the wrong side of history when he sought to kill God's anointed son, David. Pontius Pilate chose the wrong side of history when, even though he knew him to be innocent, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. They chose the wrong side of history and of eternity. And so the psalmist here urges us at the end of this psalm, he says, be wise. We might say, wise up, take sides. And to help us do that, he gives us two pictures. One is concerning our safety, and one is concerning our submission. He uses the word here in the last verse, refuge. A refuge is a safe place, the kind of place that many Ukrainians are fleeing to at the moment, somewhere where they can find safety. And here we read in the last verse, how blessed are those who take refuge in him. In other words, there's coming a day when you and I cannot find refuge from God. But what we're urged to do is find our refuge in God. Not to run from him in fear of disobedience, but to run to him in faith. How blessed, says the psalmist, are those who take their refuge in him. And then he says, kiss the son. Again, it's a picture from the ancient world when a subject would kiss the hand of a sovereign as a sign of allegiance. And what he's really saying is, submit your lives to the gracious authority of God and his son. And go into the world and serve him with godly fear and with joyful reverence. We need to take sides. We need to go to the one safe place, the only safe place in the world, eternally safe place, 
and then go into the world as servants of God and his anointed son. May that be true for every one of us. Let us take a moment to pray as we come to the end of our service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the great good news that despite our foolish rebellion as human beings, having turned to our own way and made a mess of your world and our lives, that you are still seated on the throne. You are the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to the consequences of our own foolishness, but you have acted in love to restore us to yourself and ultimately to restore your broken world. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel welcomes people of every nation and background and culture into the fellowship of your Son. Thank you, Lord, that we too are welcome. And thank you, Lord, for the fact that your church is growing across the nations and we can become part of a great family in heaven and on earth. And thank you for the certainty that it will continue to grow until that day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you will grant us the wisdom this morning to see these issues clearly. Not to turn from you in fear or self-will, but wisely to turn to you in faith and submission. And keep us, Lord, from spending our lives in trivial pursuits, but help us to work for those things of eternal value. Help us, Lord, to serve you in the world with deep conviction and with joyful hope. And show us, Lord, how we can better reach out in love, in your name, to a needy world, in all its hopelessness and its pain. Lord, we ask these things for your great name's sake. Amen.